0: turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we will be looking at verses 31 through 43. Our sermon this morning is entitled, I Once Was Blind. And our key words for our worshipers in training are cross, sight, and mercy. Let's think about the words we just sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now those are very sweet words, very famous words. But those words are the testimony of every true Christian. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, we were all dead in our transgressions and sins and we come into the world as enemies of God. We are naturally inclined toward enmity with God, strife with God and with our fellow man. And sometimes that hatred for God is this conscious effort of ours to to reject and oppose all that God is and all uh, that he has made known about himself. Other times, it's a careless suppression of the truth of God and his law that is written on the heart of every person. Maybe it's not an outward hostility that manifests itself in words of hatred for God, but in a willful rebellion against his law, which is a revelation of his character. So there is enmity regardless. But then when we're Christians, we recognize in the midst of all of that, something happens instantly. And it doesn't matter if we've heard about it a thousand times, if we've seen it happen in someone else's life. The grace of God is nothing all that meaningful to us until we're transformed by it. And all of our claims of goodness and all of our attempts at righteousness are revealed for what they are. And we recognize that we are wretches. We are in need of redemption. We recognize that we cannot go on without the amazing grace of God. And the beautiful thing about John Newton's hymn is that he illustrates what happens in a way that we can understand very vividly. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was in the dark. I was wandering around without knowing what's in front or behind or either side of me. But now, now because of the grace of God, there is light, there is vision, there is sight, there is the ability That I did not have before. You see the grace of God changes us on the most fundamental level. And it works from the inside out. Our hearts are changed. And in times our actions are changed as well. Now all of this rests upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. We would never receive God's grace were it not for the work of Christ to fulfill his covenant responsibility with the Father to bring about the salvation of mankind. You see, God's law is the unflinching requirement for all people to uphold it in absolute perfection. But there's a problem. None of us can. We all fall short of God's requirement. And as a result, we've broken God's law. The penalty he's prescribed is death, everlasting condemnation. But in the fullness of time, Jesus came into the world to set sinners free, living a perfect life, fulfilling God's perfect law, dying a sinner's death on a cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God that was reserved for us. And when our faith is in Christ, His righteousness, His right standing, His acceptance before the Father because of His perfection is transferred to our account and we become children of God. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can buy. It is grace alone and it comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And because of the work of Christ, We now have a way to enter into the kingdom of God. And apart from that, we're helpless. We're dead. And so God commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin and to believe this gloriously good news, to believe on Christ, to put all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith, all of our assurance in Jesus Christ alone. And as Christians, we know this to be true because of the testimony of Scripture. And we know God's grace to be evident and real because of its effect in our own lives. However, what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke and what we will see in today's passage is that even Jesus' closest disciples did not have the categories to think through all I've just explained. They didn't think through and they didn't understand How it would be that their Savior would need to be crucified in order to be set free. In order for us to have the blinders removed that we might see. So let's read beginning in verse 31 of Luke chapter 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, throughout the Gospel of Luke, there are at least seven times when Jesus alludes to his coming death. Three of the times are very plain explanations of what is going to happen, and this one here is one of the plainest of those instances. And notice the detail with which Jesus uses to explain it. Going to Jerusalem, fulfilling everything the prophets had said would happen to the Son of Man delivered up to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and then killed. So the suffering that Jesus was to endure was very plainly presented to the disciples by Jesus. And while you think, you might think if I were to stand here and tell you that I was a little bit crazy, it would be somewhat similar of me saying, I'm going to die and it's going to be on the 15th green on the Lost Plantation golf course. Someone's going to hit a ball from behind me. It's going to strike me in the head. I'm going to have a brain aneurysm, and I'm going to die. Now, you would very clearly know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not really leaving anything up for question in that explanation. We have the same kind of clear and plain language from Jesus here. Look further, he also says, on the third day, he will rise. And when Jesus talks about his death, when he shines any light on the cross at all, he always talks about the resurrection as well. It's a package deal. If Jesus died and there is no resurrection, we have a dead Savior who can do us no good. We cannot simply focus on Jesus' death. And the gospel does not just include Jesus' death, but also his resurrection. So Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, and this is how I'm going to die, and then I will be raised from the dead. But what do we see? Look at verse 34. They understood none of these things. And I think it's really easy for us to look at this and say, really? You really don't understand what he's saying. So you're saying you're going to be standing on the 15th green, someone's going to hit a ball, it's going to hit you in the head, you're going to have a brain aneurysm, and you're going to die? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't get it. Can you explain it for me again? You see, our tendency is to look at the disciples and say, they were really dumb fishermen, weren't they? But we have to consider two really important elements here. Because modern Bible readers like us, we like to get all pompous as we read things because we have the whole story. We know what happens in the end, and the disciples didn't. And there's two really important reasons why this didn't make sense to the disciples. The first one is this. It's expectation. Remember, we've talked about this before. About their expectation of who the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would do. And while they were brought, they they had bought into the idea already that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, what he was going to do as the Messiah was far different than what they had assumed. We thought about this a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 17. The Jews assumed. That when the Messiah appeared, he would bring salvation and blessing uh, to his people, and that judgment would come upon all the wicked nations who had oppressed Israel. They believed that God would provide his long-promised messianic king to David's royal throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And they believed that the Messiah would liberate the entire region of Palestine from Gentile oppressors, and specifically that he would drive out the Romans. So when Jesus and John the Baptist made this proclamation that the kingdom of God was at hand, this was the filter through which they were hearing all of this. You see, their expectation was this secularized, politicized kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom was very different a kingdom where God would bring deliverance from humanity's true enemy, the guilt and power of sin. And in the end, because Jesus did not offer this nationalistic kingdom that the Israelites had longed for and assumed was coming, they killed him. And they killed him without knowing that his very death and resurrection were the means by which all of the promises of God would ultimately be fulfilled. In Mark chapter 10, Mark records the same instance as we see in Luke. But he includes further details as what the disciples discussed on their way to Jerusalem. Just knowing in their minds that the kingdom was being established. And Mark writes, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask from you. Okay. Okay. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in all your glory. Jesus goes on to tell them that they do not know what they are talking about. Why? Because they wanted to be Jesus' right hand men in a physical kingdom. They were clueless as to what was really coming because of their preconceived expectations of what all of that was to look like. So when Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection, even in such specific details, they were completely lost because they thought he was coming to sit on a literal physical throne in Jerusalem to reign and rule as the king of their nation state. They never fathomed that he came, he was born, Now, the second reason is even more clear to us in verse 34. And it is God's sovereign reason. Let's not judge the disciples here because of what the text very plainly teaches us. Look again at the end of verse 34. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. God sovereignly kept the eyes of his disciples blind to the reality of what was to come. Their eyes, their minds were closed. I think it's really helpful for us to look at this parallel passage that comes up later in Luke 24. Flip, flip over to Luke chapter 24. And the context here is that Jesus has died and has resurrected and the people from Jerusalem are now having all kinds of conversations about all that had happened. And two of the disciples—not of the eleven, but probably of the broader band of disciples, the seventy-two—they were walking on the road of uh, the road to Emmaus. And on the road, they were discussing all of the events that had happened the previous three days. And they were sad, and they were very confused. And so we see this in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And this is key. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So here was Jesus who just spent all of this time with them, and they didn't recognize him. Why? Because they were kept from recognizing him by the sovereign power of God. So then they explain what had happened, but Jesus cuts them off in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So Jesus walked with them. He spoke to them. He had dinner with them. And all the while they did not recognize who he was. Until, the text says, their eyes were opened. Well, what does that mean? They weren't walking around with their eyes closed. The Lord opened their eyes. We see in Luke 18 then, the eyes of the disciples, as Jesus is explaining all that's going on in his death, are closed by the sovereign hand of God. And then in Luke 24, the eyes of the disciples are opened it's a remarkable work of god's providence. And if you read the second book that Luke wrote in the bible, the book of acts, we see the difference of opened eyes with the disciples, right? Here we see they're all along the way they're confused, they're timid, they're beat down disciples, but then their eyes are opened and they become these bold powerful preachers of the word of God and thousands are being added to the church day by day by day. It's amazing. Mark's parallel to Luke 18, we read that the disciples were amazed and those who followed Jesus were afraid. Why? Because their eyes are closed. But when their eyes are opened, when they can see, they become something altogether different. They stand before the Sanhedrin And they proclaim the gospel, and they're beaten, and they walk away. And they say, praise God. Praise God that we can suffer for the sake of Christ. Let's go preach the gospel again. Now, we see them bold and unflinching and faithful proclaimers of God's truth because their eyes have been opened by God. They once were blind, but now they see. Now Luke transitions his story a bit at this point. He tells of Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection, and the disciples are blind. And here we see the disciples now on the move. They're drawing near to Jericho. And Jericho is a town only about 15 miles east of Jerusalem. And they're closing in on Jesus' final days here on the earth. But along the way they meet a man. Let's read in Luke 18, beginning in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now Jesus' approach here to Jericho was going to be accompanied by a large entourage of disciples. It's very common for the most prominent uh, rabbis of the day to walk out ahead of a large group who would follow and they would teach them along the way. So it wouldn't have been a very unfamiliar thing except for the likelihood that there were so many people following along. And at this time, there would have been a larger than normal crowd anyway because we're drawing closely to Passover. They're on their way to Jerusalem for their annual visit to the temple. However, by now, all the people knew who Jesus was. Word had spread quickly. He'd been doing his work for almost three years now. And the people wanted to be near him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to watch and see what he would do. Some of the crowd was very hostile toward him, watching his every move. How can we catch him? Others were elated by his presence. So while all of this is going on, there's a blind man. We learn in Mark's gospel that his name is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus would have been sitting outside of the city gate, begging passers-by for food. It was probably his normal routine. Each and every day, he couldn't work to earn money, so he depended on what he could receive from those who would give it to him. But suddenly, as he sat begging, his blind, sensitive ears heard the sound of a great crowd approaching. And he asked, Who is that? What is, what's going on? Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth has nothing to do with him being the Messiah. It was inconsequential in terms of him being the God-man. But the word about Jesus and his mighty works in fulfillment of the prophecy of old had reached far and wide. Messianic speculation was very, very high among the Jews. So perhaps Bartimaeus had heard that Jesus called himself the Son of Man. That he had been from the right bloodline, that he was from the tribe of Judah. Whatever the case was, Bartimaeus immediately came to the right conclusion Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Surely by this time, Bartimaeus was surrounded by many people. Think of, if you're a blind man, think of being in downtown Savannah on St. Patrick's Day. Surrounded by all kinds of people. He had nothing else to do. He didn't know where Jesus was. He just knew that he was there somewhere in the crowd. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's a messianic cry. Bartimaeus may have been physically blind, but the eyes of his heart were open wide. He knew that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He would not miss his opportunity to miss him along the way. That title, Son of David, it points to Jesus as the royal Messiah in the line of David. And so as such, he fulfills the promises God made to David regarding the everlasting reign of his offspring. So Jesus is the unique agent in bringing the rule of God to the earth, a rule that is characterized by salvation and blessing. And Bartimaeus understood this. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is what Jesus' miracles were intended to reveal. this man, Bartimaeus, though blind, understood what nearly everyone around him did not. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But Bartimaeus was aware of his miserable condition. And any person who genuinely cries out to Jesus does so from a a profound sense of need a profound knowledge of their condition, a profound understanding of their hopelessness without Jesus and his mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Again, as Luke has made so clear, it was the poor, it was the afflicted, it was the blind who saw Jesus for who he was. Who believed what was promised about him in the scriptures and revealed in all of his miracles. And they are the ones who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus had amazing persistence. All around him, the people were saying, Be quiet, man, stop yelling. You're making a scene. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Will someone please make him quiet? He didn't care who was around. He didn't care who heard him. He didn't have any concern about what others thought. He wanted to make sure Jesus heard him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He was beyond anyone's ability to control him. But those who treat Jesus as a spectacle, as an object of discussion, receive nothing from him. But for the cry of mercy, Jesus stops and he gives all of himself to them. Verse 40, and Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. So despite the efforts of the crowd to quiet him, the blind man was heard by Jesus. This is a wonderful scene. Ever since chapter 9, we've seen Jesus with his face set toward Jerusalem. And now it is drawing very near. There was a cross on his mind. There was a great struggle that cast its shadow back upon his path. Surely he was bracing himself, focusing on what was yet to come. And if there was ever a time in Jesus' ministry that we could understand him ignoring the needs of, of yet another afflicted soul, this would be it. And yet, however absorbed with the great affairs that rested upon his shoulders, the work before him that would be the focal point of all human history stopped in that moment. Because Jesus heard Bartimaeus's cry. You see, Jesus is able to do what no earthly minister can do. However attentive a pastor may be to the needs of his church, he can still only do one thing at a time. He can only be in one place. He can only give his attention to one area. And it's sadly true, and I've said it before, that even though I don't want to, even though it's never my intention, I will sometimes fail you as a pastor. And it's, it's true of every earthly pastor, Sometimes we're unavailable. Sometimes we don't give you the attention that you need. And I assure you, it's never our intention, but it happens. But you see, that's what's so important about seeing Jesus rightly. What is true of every minister, every pastor, every friend, every member of the body of Christ is never true of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is in heaven and we find in scripture that he has some fairly extensive duties. He's administering the universe, guiding and empowering his church, wielding providence, serving as executor of the grand plan of God. Meanwhile, he's receiving praise of the vast host beyond counting. And yet when you, as a child of God, cry out to him for mercy, for comfort, for him, You receive all of his attention. He stops, as it were, for you. And you get the sense that it's for you alone. Through his human nature, he was finite. But he possesses a well of infinite divinity so that he can lavish his attention upon each and every one of us who cry out to him for mercy. And he does this without taking his attention off any of his other sheep or his vast divine duties. He does not sleep and he does not slumber. So here we see Jesus and he orders Bartimaeus to come forth. Mark's gospel gives more specific details than Luke. Mark writes, Jesus stooped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, or cheer up, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. What a model of faith Bartimaeus is. He wasted no time calling out to Jesus when he knew he was there. And then when he was called by Jesus, he sprung to his feet, he cast aside every weight, and he raced over to Jesus so that he could be there even without his sight. This, friends, is what we must do to be secure in Christ, to be saved from the penalty of our sin, to cry out to Jesus as he is being proclaimed, to throw off every weight, to get rid of every hindrance that might keep us away and race to him who calls us. J.C. Ryle comments on this passage and says, Let us strive and pray that we may have the same precious faith. We too are not allowed to see Jesus with our bodily eyes, but we have the report of his power and grace and willingness to save in the gospel. We have exceeding great promises from his own lips written down for our encouragement. Let us trust those promises implicitly and commit our souls to Christ unhesitatingly. If you want to be saved, you, like Bartimaeus, must forget all about what other people think or say and recognize your great need as a blind sinner to race forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who calls upon you to repent And believe and be saved. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we have the privilege to call out, Come, all who are blind, all who are guilty and unrighteous and poor in spirit and lost in sin, come to Jesus, for this is the day that He is calling you to repent and believe. And look what Jesus does. In our text, we have a clear indication of Jesus' divinity that He would ever even ask a question like He does. What do you want me to do for you? Well, Bartimaeus wanted a miracle. And by faith, he trusted that only Jesus could do that miracle. And you know, one of the reasons we don't draw near to Jesus in close, loving communion is that we easily forget what Jesus is able to do. We forget his ability to oversee our affairs and to minister with power to the heart of faith. It is true that his will, and not ours, governs his sovereign power. And I thank God that he doesn't answer every one of my prayers. I lack the wisdom, much less the omniscience, to know what is good for me. But the scripture's promise answers when we pray to God for his will. But suppose you had Jesus make the kind of offer that he did to Bartimaeus. What would you ask for? Think about that. What would you ask Jesus for? If you are wise, you're not asking for the end of your pain, the end of your financial difficulties. You're not asking for perfect children or your dream job. You're not asking for any of that. You would ask, Jesus, son of David, I want to see Lord, heal me of my blindness. Take away all of my sin and give me your mercy. You see, Jesus is not a cosmic genie, but he is an all-loving giver of mercy and of grace. He is the Lord who is able to give with power, who is, uh, who is willing to give for salvation and new life. What would you like me to do, Jesus asks And that's a question, and that's an offer that Jesus genuinely makes to those who would look to him in faith. Lord, I want to see. Lord, recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately a man who had never had even a sliver of light enter into his eye could see. This is the power of Jesus. This is the power of Jesus in salvation. I once was blind, but now I see. That's God's sovereign work. It's immediate. It's instantaneous. It's radical. And for those who are blind and can see, it's freedom. You see, what matters is not the extent of your problems, but the infinity of Christ's power. Not the depth of your sin, but the height of His grace. And if you will believe, if you will cry out to Jesus, you too will see just as Bartimaeus opened up his eyes and was instantly looking into the face of Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith. How does it end? Verse 43, Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The two things we see, the two greatest signs of someone's salvation in Christ are what we see in Bartimaeus. Following after Jesus and giving praise to God. This is a great principle of Christianity. We are saved by faith in Christ and in him alone. Some scholars say Mark's gospel preserves Bartimaeus' name because he became somewhat of a stalwart in the Jerusalem church. He followed Jesus, witnessing the triumphal, triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the horror of the crucifixion, the joy of the resurrection. Talk about getting an eyeful. So what were the disciples meant to learn by this event? What are we to learn from the blind sight, the, the marvelous spiritual vision of the blind beggar? First, we we must see our need. Bartimaeus knew that he was blind, and he articulated it. Lord, I want to see. Are you blind? Are you blind to your sin? Are you blind to your need of Christ? Perhaps you're a Christian, but your sin has cauterized your eyes to see. To not be able to see what Christ is asking of you. And so whatever it is, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart that you might see, that you might behold. Secondly, once you see your need, you need to see who Jesus is. He's the Son of Man, the Son of David, the awesome, glorious Sovereign whom all peoples of all nations will worship and whose kingdom and dominion will never end. He's the son of David, the deliverer who will fulfill everything King David foreshadowed. He is the Savior. He is Christ, the King. And third, you need to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Seeing your need, seeing who Jesus really is, now cry out in faith, have mercy on me. Do you see yourself? Do you see Jesus? Have you called out to him? Jesus, have mercy on me. As Jesus went into Jericho town, it was darkness all from toe to crown, about blind Bartimaeus. He said, our eyes are more than dim, and so, of course, we don't see him, but David's son can see us. Cry out, cry out, blind brother, cry. Let not salvation, dear, go by. Have mercy, son of David. Though they were blind, they both could hear. They heard and cried, and he drew near. And so the blind were saved. O Jesus Christ, I am deaf and blind. Nothing comes through into my mind. I only am not dumb. Although I see thee not, nor hear, I cry because thou mayest be near. O son of Mary, come. I feel a finger on mine ear. A voice comes through the deafness drear. Be opened, senses dim. A hand is laid upon mine eyes. I hear and hearken, see and rise. Tis he. I follow him. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us. For those who, in the hearing of your word today, are dead in their transgressions and sins, have mercy on them. For those who are in Christ, who continue walking in perpetual sin, have mercy on them. For those of us, Lord, who recognize our fallenness, our brokenness, and our propensity to continue to turn against your will, have mercy on us. Father, it is only by your goodness, it is only by your kindness, it is only by your will that any of us are walking faithfully at all. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to see your word, to understand your word, to love your word, and to walk faithfully according to your word, that you would be glorified and that our lives would be made whole in Christ Jesus alone. And while we recognize we will not escape sin in this life, we long and we hope, eagerly longing and hoping for the life to come. But we know too, Lord, that the Holy Spirit dwells within your people and we have all that is necessary for a life of godliness. And so we pray, Lord, you would make us a holy, godly people who see with eyes of faith, who remember the great depths you have pulled us from that we can see. And Father, help us to faithfully follow you, giving praise and glory to you all the days of our life. Thank you for your word, and thank you for your mercy. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.